0: Lying, hypnotizing, gaslighting, did Texas's serial killer whisperer and his questionable tactics ensnare an innocent man? I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube, an amazing new podcast from journalist Maurice Shema and the Marshall Project called Just Say You're Sorry, poses all of those questions that I reeled off at the beginning and ultimately asks, what's the price that we pay for a sense that we've closed the books? when we might be closing them on the wrong page. Maurice Shammaz, staff writer and the author of Let the Lord Sort Them the Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty, which won the 2019 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Book Award, which also needs to be renamed for brevity. His work has been published by The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. He's a former Fulbright Fellow. He helps organize the Insider Prize, which is a contest for incarcerated writers, sponsored by the magazine American Short Fiction, and relevant for this show and his podcast he lives in austin texas maurice welcome back to beyond politics hi thanks so much for having me thrilled to be here it's really great to have you back we can talk a little bit later on about the connection point to your earlier appearance on the show but i want to get right into this podcast i'm not just talking it up your podcast is riveting it's really terrific i urge people to check it out there are so many stories of potential innocence out there.
1: You encounter them all the time in the course of your work. Why did you want to tell this story? So I do encounter in my work a lot of innocence claims from people in prison, a lot of people who say I was convicted, but I did not commit this crime, or in some cases it wasn't even a crime at all, right? It was an accident. But Frequently, I find these individual cases that seem to speak to larger policy issues in terms of how the criminal justice system functions. They go beyond the individual case and can tell us something larger. I also think, and this may sound callous or pessimistic, but I think in 2023, many Americans, maybe most Americans, understand that innocent people go to prison, and they feel like they have heard that story before to some extent. And so I was often finding myself looking for stories that would break people out of any kind of inertia in terms of revealing what goes on when law enforcement investigate these cases. So this is the case of Larry Driscoll that I tell in the podcast, and it stuck out to me for a few reasons. One was that it was very recent. He went to prison in 2015. I think often when people hear about wrongful convictions, they make an assumption that we're talking about the 70s or 80s or 90s, and it is, of course, a tragedy when people go to prison for 20, 30 years on a crime they didn't commit. But the injustice, at least at the trial stage, happened a long time ago. In Larry Driscoll's case, again, he was arrested and his life transformed in 2015, which was when I was already working as a reporter. In addition, Larry Driscoll confessed to the crime that sent him to prison. And this is a subset of wrongful convictions. And I think it's one that people have a hard time still to this day wrapping their mind around. How could you possibly confess to a crime that you didn't commit? What would, how could you possibly reach the circumstances where that could happen? It feels unthinkable to many of us. It still felt very hard to imagine for me. And yet there was no evidence against Larry Driscoll beyond his own confession and plenty of reasons to think that he did not commit the crime. So it was a good kind of case study to understand how does this happen to somebody and he wasn't a teenager and he wasn't traumatized from the past. There was not an easy, quick explanation for how it came to be. Tell us a little bit of the character
0: that you introduce. He's not a character. He's a real human, but he's a character in your story. James Holland. Yeah. A so, Texas so... Ranger who, and you have an emotional relationship
1: as do we all in America with the Texas Rangers. So tell us about him. Sure. Yet another reason that I wanted to tell the story and thought that it could work in podcast form was because the detective at the center of the story who elicited this purported false confession and who found Larry Driscoll in the first place is a Texas Ranger named James Holland. And we talk about having a relationship to them. I grew up in Texas, but I think even if you didn't grow up in Texas, you have heard of the Texas Rangers. When I was young, there was a TV show called Walker, Texas Ranger. There was a baseball team. I remember when I was in elementary school going to see the Texas Rangers play in Arlington. The Texas Rangers just exist on a cultural level as a sort of elite force that has, unlike the FBI or Scotland Yard, they're seen very much as these kind of, there was the lone ranger. So they're seen very much as these sort of lone figures who go out and do the thing that other law enforcement can't do. They crusade for justice. They crusade for justice. There's an old saying that I remember hearing growing up, one riot, one ranger. So that suggests that he's going to deal with the riot and he's going to deal with it alone, that you don't need a bunch of rangers. You don't need a whole squad. And that mythology around the rangers, I always understood that it existed, but thought of it as independent from the modern day Rangers. I just knew them as this police force that works around the state. But as I got into the reporting, I learned that there actually is a connection. That mythology plays a role in the way that the Texas Rangers operate today. And by that, I mean that a lot of them still work alone. They go out and do cases by themselves, which is the case of James Holland that I'll get to. They there's this idea that they're going to waltz into the interrogation room with their big Stetson 10-gallon hat, place it on the table, and the guy is immediately going to start confessing because everyone knows the Texas Rangers always solve it. This was how it was explained to me by by a tour guide, actually, at the Texas Ranger Museum and Hall of Fame, which we cover in the podcast. They always get their man. They always get their man. And also, by the way, they have a Hall of Fame. That that many (laughs) We just skated over that. That's weird. Yeah. Many law enforcement, very few law enforcement agencies have this sort of thing. I suppose there's police museums, but a Hall of Fame indicates the idea that these individual rangers are superheroes on their own who always get their man. So within that culture, James Holland rose through the ranks. And now when we, again, setting aside the historical rangers, which is obviously a podcast in and of itself, and I'll just flag that there is a very good podcast on that history that was made by Texas Monthly. It's called White Hats. So there was a feeling, I think, that they'd covered the sort of historical rangers. And we wanted to understand what is a ranger today? How does one become one? And we felt that was really key to telling the story of James Holland and how he came to get Larry Driscoll for this murder. So James Holland, actually not from Texas, grew up in Illinois, went to college for criminal justice, and eventually took a job with the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is a statewide law enforcement agency, best known, I think, for just pulling you over on the side of the road. And that's what he did for a long time. He was a highway trooper. But he developed a reputation for being very good at getting people to admit to things, and that began on the side of the road. He pulls someone over and has the kind of sixth sense that there's drugs or guns in the car. And next thing you know, he's got someone to admit it and that person is under arrest. And then over time, he's given the ability to work on murder cases. And one of the more astonishing stories that I found in the kind of archive of his work was that there was a man who had committed a murder, no question that he had committed it, but then he had fled to Mexico And Holland had first found a way to contact him, basically convinced the man's sister in the United States to give up a phone number called him in Mexico, and then over the course of multiple conversations, convinces him to travel up to the border where Holland himself meets him, and they fly in a Texas Department of Public Safety plane back to the county, and he confesses the crime and is arrested and sent to prison. So there's this sort of superhuman ability to use the kind of gift of language to convince and persuade people. Now, James Holland, when I first encountered him in the reporting, I was it was pretty easy to find a lot about him because he had already become somewhat famous. He'd become famous in the case of a couple of different serial killers where he had gone into prison and gotten these serial killers to confess to dozens of crimes that they had not confessed to previously. But it turned out that there was this this other side to his work where where the people he was trying to interrogate and convince were not already in prison as serial killers. They were men living their lives. And that is the case of Larry Driscoll.
0: And I think that is a good setup for the, and I don't want to give away too much because you, you construct it in the show really artfully, and it really draws the listener in so well, who is Larry Driscoll? Who is James Holland? How do they intersect? And then you take us through, the process that leads to potentially a tragic miscarriage of justice one of the ways you do that is through holland's own recordings and they're extraordinary and you're first of all there's an audio reporter's dream that you have these things these encounters not just in the interrogation room but outside it their initial encounters with one another and it's through the reconstruction of this audio That you really get an insight into the process and you start to answer this question of how could someone confess to a crime that they might not have committed? What was it like for you listening to these recordings? Because you you get the listeners, we get to hear them as part of the show. What was it like for you as the reporter going through them? Because I, I gotta say, they were riveting for me.
1: They are riveting. They're extraordinary. And a big part of the work of making the podcast was essentially just editing this audio that we already had into a sort of tight frame so that people could digest it in 30 minutes or an hour. The actual recordings of Larry Driscoll and James Holland together are, I want to say... Five to seven hours total. And I spent days listening to them over and over again. And once you get into the sort of headspace of really being there with them as they interact, it's a very, I don't want to use the word entertaining because that makes it sound sort of light, but it is an immersive experience because when James Holland, the Texas Ranger, approaches Larry Driscoll, you can really hear in the audio that. Driscoll has no idea what this Texas Ranger is talking about, no idea that he is about to be questioned about a murder. And so then you listen as he says, okay, you're saying maybe I was a witness to a crime? I don't know about that, but I guess I'll get in this truck with you and go to the sheriff's office. And then you watch as, or you listen as Holland just slowly turns up the pressure. And as he turns up the pressure, Driscoll starts to construct little memories or or starts to have these little epiphanies of, I guess I maybe was in that area of Fort Worth that you're describing. I guess I do have a memory of that. And then you hear how Holland is interpreting what Driscoll is saying to mean that he was withholding things and that Holland has now gotten him to reveal that he was actually at the scene of the crime. And so it's this dance between these two men where there's so much going on psychologically and. I remember feeling very immersed, but also Mm. thinking, I don't have the tools to fully understand what I'm hearing. So part of the project was also bringing these recordings to psychologists, to experts on confessions and interrogations, so that they could help translate for me, the lay person, and then eventually the listener, the audience. What is beneath the surface of this kind of dance between these two men? What is going on psychologically? How is each man making his decisions about what he's going to say next? Let's take a break. We'll be right back.
0: That's the thing is that I could almost, when you said before you watch as, I don't think that was necessarily the wrong choice of word because <laughs> even though I'm listening, it's a very visual experience in my mind as I reconstruct. You, you listen to Larry Driscoll as each piece of suggested new information comes from James Holland, What if I told you that? I'm not faithfully reconstructing exactly what he said, but what if I told you that we had evidence that you were on this boulevard? What if I told you that your vehicle was seen? Are you and you hear him say, Okay, okay, as each little piece is introduced, and it for me, it just evoked. I said, this kind of visual experience of Driscoll trying to process in real time, here's something, okay, what do I do with this? And underlying it all is this seeming determination to be helpful, Mm to try to solve James Holland's problem for him. It really, the former FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss, talks about using this technique in hostage negotiations, trying to make your counterparty solve your problem for you, not filling in too much, letting them start to fill in ideas and do your work for you. And you could almost see that happening.
1: Yeah. And you can hear when Larry Driscoll isn't giving Holland what he wants, that occasionally he'll say, I guess I was at that intersection. I used to drive a van and there's a van in this case, but No, that woman doesn't look familiar, that woman being the victim in the case, the woman who was murdered, who we can get to. He's At a certain point, he's really not giving Holland much, and Holland starts to have to do the work for himself. But then when he starts to ask questions, hypothetically, if this is the way that this murder had happened, hypothetically, how would you have gone about doing that? And... You're not committing to confession. You're not admitting to anything, but let's just hypothetically have you. And that word hypothetically shows up repeatedly in the transcript, Mm. in the audio. And what you're, and it is very visual because you're, when you use a word like hypothetically, you're inviting someone to imagine for themselves something that happened. And so the listener can imagine the scenarios that are being discussed around this possible murder. How did this woman, I'll jump back and say that it was a woman named Bobby Sue Hill. She was doing sex work in Fort Worth. The really seedy part of Fort Worth, where I think it was not uncommon for people to disappear, for people to be abducted. It was very dangerous. And she disappears, but then her body is found in a rural part of Texas. It's about an hour west of Fort Worth, not far from where Larry Driscoll himself lives. So the investigation is all happening in this rural community, but the victim is from Fort Worth. You can he- almost hear Larry Driscoll starting to dip into this hypothetical language and imagine for himself, if he had killed this woman, how he would have gone about doing it. Never mind that he didn't just, we we all have this experience where we have memories and things we can concretely say happened. And then we have our imagination and things that are, that we know didn't happen. But the more time you spend letting those two sides of your brain almost blur together, the harder it is to be really sure what is an actual memory. What is a thing you can say? I saw this happen or I did this. And what is something that you've invented later? This of course shows up in our daily lives in very low stakes ways. And that was, I'd say almost a fun aspect of the podcast was to explore the sort of low stakes ways that we all have that kind of family story where one brother remembers that the t-shirt was red and the other one remembers it was blue and they both swear and they can't both be right. We're all familiar with the limits of our memory, and I think that these false confession cases show us uh, the kind of ultimately the tragedy of what happens when the weakness of our memory is exploited to its fullest extent.
0: And it's not hard to recreate the effect for yourself. Not that I'm suggesting experimenting on your own children. It's really not difficult to suggest to a family member, a sibling perhaps, oh, don't you remember when we were about 12 and we went to such and such and you lot, and the more you put in there, the more they start to do what Larry Driscoll did. They say, okay, and you can just see the process. People can try this for themselves if they're particularly cruel. I do wanna talk a little bit about the victim in this case because it's something I didn't really know now that I'm interviewing you. It's something that I didn't really know how to bring up because you seem in creating this series to be, I guess if you had to pick a genre on Apple podcasts, they might put it in true crime, but that's not what you're doing. If anything, it seems like you're subverting a lot of genres that we're familiar with for entertainment in America. It And this is just me, it feels to me like you're subverting the true crime genre, you're subverting the detective genre, and you're subverting the courtroom genre. And it, one of the ways is, In true crime, there's a sort of prurient interest in the victim. And you're very much asking, what does one do? What is owed to the family of a victim, to the memory of a victim, when the person who is fingered for the crime was likely put there through underhanded means and is probably innocent? Did you, am I way off on this? Did you set out to subvert those ideas?
1: I don't think we we thought about it as subverting, but we understood. So my day job is at the Marshall Project, which is a news outlet that covers the criminal justice system. And so everything that we do, my work entirely, is focused on understanding the system part of it. And when I say the system, the things that affect dozens, hundreds, thousands of people, whether that's prison conditions or prosecution practices or the things that detectives, law enforcement do. And for good and for bad. The Marshall Project has also written articles about sort of positive developments that that are reducing the likelihood of wrongful convictions, say, or are making prisons more rehabilitative. It's not purely doom and gloom. However, In this, I had, as I'd been doing this work, around the time I started doing it was around when the podcast Serial first came out, which was in 2014. And that was a landmark in that it inaugurated this era of multi-part series where you tell one story in multiple episodes. And since that had happened, the podcast Serial did do a pretty good job of zooming out from the individual case of Adnan Syed, the man whose conviction is at the center of it and who the podcast serial, of course, spends nine episodes picking apart the case against him and then wondering aloud whether he is in fact guilty. And that to me had been a major model, but I had seen many podcasts that were about crimes not do that, not zoom out, and really focus on the kind of prurient interests, as you put it, of a murder, violence, horrible thing that happened to frequently a woman victim, and then the kind of heroic story of how the police and prosecutors put someone behind bars. And I know from my reporting that often happens that way, but it doesn't always happen that way, and it's the problems that we need to focus on in order to, to fix our system to make it more just, more accurate, more fair. The hope was to blend some aspects of the true crime genre with this more of zoomed out style of criminal justice reporting that helps you understand why did things play out the way that they did in this case, and what does that tell us about the larger system and the things that we can perhaps fix. For example, we spend a lot of time talking about the particular aspects of the interrogation that are currently being debated in state legislatures. So, for example, the Texas Ranger James Holland frequently lies to Larry Driscoll. He says mm-hmm. things that are just simply not true. And those are key, a key, those play a key role in leading Driscoll down the road towards a Confession. Once the ranger has lied and said, Wow, there's proof that you and your license plate number were in this time and place, that leads Larry Driscoll to imagine himself at the scene of the crime and get closer to the point of confession. It's like the first step down that runway. But at the same time, I had listened to Plenty of podcasts that I felt did a disservice to the victim's family that sort of told their story without adequately reaching out to that family. Even in the case of Serial, the family of Heyman Lee, who is the victim in that case, whether or not Adnan Syed was truly responsible for her murder she has still been murdered. And I remember very vividly reading a quote from her brother who said, for you all, it's your true crime entertainment, it's your podcast, but for me, it's real life. And I carried that into this story and spent a lot of time soliciting advice from organizations that work with family members of victims in these sorts of cases, and then using that advice to approach the family of Bobby Sue Hill. Many of those family members told me they had been very unhappy with the way that she had been presented in prior media. And there'd never Mm. been a podcast about the case. But the way she was portrayed in the newspaper when Larry Driscoll was arrested was very much, she was a sex worker The picture in the newspaper was her mugshot. She was very much reduced to sex worker on the east side of Fort Worth who got abducted. And so there's this implication that she was a little bit responsible for her situation. But as I started talking to the family, I learned that there was a much richer picture here that she had been a mother of five, that she had struggled with substance abuse. And then her husband, the father of these children, had died in a car accident. And that had sent her sort of spiraling into drugs and this situation with sex work. But even in in the midst of that tragedy, she had a real relationship with, with a man who she was living in various hotels with. They were really scraping by day to day. And he was the one who had seen her be abducted. He was the one who said to law enforcement, yeah, she went into this van to to turn a trick and the van sped off with her and I saw the man's face. And it was his descriptions that, 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 that really got the ball rolling on the investigation. And I interviewed him and he was, to this day, 10 years later, devastated by the loss of this woman that he had been very serious with. So there were all these different layers of tragedy surrounding the case and her. And we decided that we, in order to, we, I, I think saying do justice to her is overblowing. And I don't know that we can say whether we did. I think that's up to her family to decide whether we treated her memory with adequate honor and dignity. But we spent a lot of time trying to do that and trying to make her a three-dimensional person for listeners so that they can understand the circumstances around her death, but also understand who she was and and not have her whole life be reduced to the tragic circumstances of when she died. It struck
0: me as both appropriate and a very important choice that you treated the subject of the victim in this case the way you did, because it really sets up what feels like the heart of what you're doing in this show, which is helping all of us to grapple with our sense of justice and kind of, as I set up at the beginning, the price of justice. It helped me to feel here is a person, here's a three dimensional person, not reduced to the way one might in a more prurient treatment of a true crime story. Here is a person whose murder demands justice, and I want. As a member of society, I want the Texas Ranger to get their man. Right. But I also want it to be the right man. And I, I think that's something, especially as we societally deal with how we empower police, the role of police, the role of investigators, especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. What are the proper steps? So often in our fiction, we valorize the crusading law enforcement official, the attorney, the a few good men cross examination, where you get Colonel Jessup to say the thing that he doesn't want to say. And here we have James Holland getting Larry Driscoll to say not only the thing he doesn't want to say, but the thing that isn't true. And it's a miscarriage of justice. I'm not really. I'm not sure that I'm going to a question with this other than just validating that to me, the the treatment of the victim is just as important here as the treatment that you gave to the psychological questions of how does Larry Driscoll arrive at this confession? Let's take a break, we'll be right back.
1: Yeah, and I also wanna say that the true crime boom in terms of culture, in terms of podcasts, TV, Netflix, streaming series, etc., has coincided with a very tragic rise in cold cases. So there are really more cold cases today than there used to be the rate at which police solve homicides has been dropping since 50 years ago. And so there are more cases going unsolved, which is just creating a larger and larger backlog. And part of the thinking behind this podcast was to go deep on one case, in a case where detectives were using this huge array of questionable, controversial techniques and tactics to get their man in order to get members of the public who control what happens ultimately through their elected representatives to really start thinking through what are we comfortable with as a society? We once have a sense that a victim is a whole person who deserves justice. Once you've told their story, you understand the motivation for wanting to solve the murder. That you're you have a, an almost an emotional desire to see the person caught and arrested for it and sent to prison and that can lead you to say cops should take the gloves off. And there are earlier eras where I was thinking culturally about what this looked like beyond the Texas Rangers. I think many people have seen the movie Dirty Harry from the 1970s. The whole point of that movie is that Dirty Harry is this cop it's called dirty in his name and the implication being that he goes outside the rules, but that he does it for the right reasons, which is to catch the serial killer who keeps evading justice. And if you watch that movie now in the era of kind of criminal justice reform, it is very funny almost and, and quaint almost to see the way they take these digs at the Supreme Court for saying, oh, we need a warrant to seize that evidence. And you got you can't question the guy without a lawyer. But I think. As there are more and more cold cases and cases that are unsolved, it's creating this incentive, this pressure on police to go rogue, basically, to to do things to either go outside the rules or, as in the case of James Holland, to use the most out there, unregulated forms of law enforcement techniques, whether it's in the interrogation room or hypnosis, which we haven't talked about, but plays a role in this case. And so the point of this podcast is to say, okay, you've come to identify and understand with the victim, Bobby Sue Hill you understand that Larry Driscoll went to prison for her murder. And now the time, now we need to zoom out and look at all the techniques that led Larry Driscoll to prison and ask, are we comfortable with them if they increase the risk of an innocent person? does How do we weigh our desire to get the person who committed a terrible crime against wanting to avoid sending innocent people to prison where I almost imagine it visually as like a set of dials, like which dials do we want to turn up and turn down in order to get the best outcomes and minimize risk, which can sound a little bit dry and boring, but these are obviously a wrongful conviction and a murder are massive, devastating events in people's lives. And every choice that we make when it comes to policy just has incredible, incredibly important outcomes.
0: It's Ultimately, unanswerable.
1: And I think it's the kind of thing that for each of us is
0: ever shifting and maybe thermostatic because mm-hmm. we react to crimes with a, as I said before, a thirst for justice. We react to miscarriages of justice with a thirst for reform. I once was put on a prospective jury duty panel. And I was, when I was being questioned by the prosecutor, she said, This case turns on the testimony of three eyewitnesses. How do you feel about that? And I decided that both, A, I had to avoid jury duty right then, and B, I could just tell the truth. And I said, I have seen multiple studies that discount the reliability of eyewitness testimony. They get critical details wrong all the time. And I would heavily discount eyewitness testimony. And I was shot off that panel so Hmm. fast. And it's true, I do believe that. I have seen those studies. And yet at the same time, I do believe we have to have a functioning system of justice that ultimately finds the perpetrators of crimes and gives the appropriate punishments. I guess what this leads to is in the first episode, you note that you have innocence lawyers on speed dial. You're unusual in that respect. You encounter stories of potential innocence and miscarriages of justice everywhere. You also report on crime and you encounter people who are very likely guilty of doing some pretty terrible things all the time. Does all of this experience that you have in the course of reporting this story, does that make you see innocence and flaws in the system everywhere? Or does it make you see overall a system that, that tends to work everywhere? Wow, that is a big question. That's
1: what I specialize in. You I know up a big of question course. podcast.
0: I have well, to go to the challenge.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say a couple of things. One is that actually 90 plus percent of my work, my journalism, isn't about cases where people are potentially innocent, mm-hmm. that they really are much of the time guilty. And the question often is not did they do it it is what is justice in this case when it comes to the punishment so for example should they be sentenced to death should they be executed right or should they spend or let's say that the crime is much more minor it's they've been arrested selling drugs say or shoplifting should they get probation and an opportunity of a second chance or should they go to prison for 5 years and lose touch with their kids or their parents and get out of prison totally un, unable to to really operate in the world the way they had before and just utterly devastated and traumatized by that experience in prison so those there are these questions around justice i think that go beyond guilt and innocence i think that the American criminal justice system, broadly speaking, sends a tremendous number of guilty people to prison. Prosecutors, by and large, don't want to send innocent people to jail or prison, and they neither do police. And so they do what they can to avoid that. And often with cases like Larry Driscoll, you're asking the question of like, how many innocent people is too many, because it is a human system at the end of the day. So What I often see when I look at the macro system is one where there's just very little understanding and education beyond the professionals who work in a day-to-day. As you said, I know Innocence Project lawyers. I have coffee with them. I meet up with prosecutors to hear about their work sometimes. I'm immersed in this system. Most people are not, and so most people are going to get called for jury duty someday or are going to vote for a state legislator or a district attorney based on certain claims about crime, and they won't have the tools to really evaluate the things that they're hearing about, whether it's eyewitness testimony or lying in the interrogation room. And doing this work has just made me all the more motivated to understand what are the gaps in what we all understand, and what are the ways that we can become more informed and create a better society altogether one that i don't necessarily purport to to say what justice is and i think part of what attracts me to this work is that it is a ultimately very nebulous term right when you say we got the right guy it sounds the word sounds like it's easy to say, okay, that's justice. But is a death sentence justice or is life in prison justice? These are yeah. ultimately very subjective calls. And I see my role as going into the system, learning everything that I possibly can so that I can come back out and translate that for people who don't have the time and the ability to immerse themselves, but will be called for jury duty and will go be voters and need to have you know, just a baseline understanding of what police do day in and day out and the ability to be Regulators, be watchdogs, and say, well, maybe police shouldn't be allowed to lie in the interrogation room or use problematic eyewitness identification lineups or at the other, another extreme shouldn't be allowed to just pull people over on flimsy pretexts and beat them up. Some of these sound really obvious when you say them in a certain way, but often there are massive gaps in education and that is what we are trying to fill. And I think the, the power of a really wild and bizarre story with strong characters like the saga of Larry Driscoll and James Holland is just a sort of inviting entry point for people to try to understand issues that can be very, complex, wonky, scientific, data-driven policy questions that can really, even if you understand them to be important, they can put you to sleep. And you sometimes need a really inviting yarn to draw you into these bigger questions.
0: And that's why
1: I think I,
0: I can so wholeheartedly recommend the show because it does that, as we noted, in a respectful way, in not in an exploitative way about the underlying tragedies that took place. It does tee up all of these fascinating questions without eliciting the yawn. It's like, now a psychological treatise on invented memory. It's far more narrative and the characters are truly fascinating. And you've done an absolutely wonderful job presenting it. And you've obviously put in just so much work into this. And so you deserve all the accolades that the show is getting. And I hope everyone who's watching and listening will check it out. The show is the podcast, Just Say You're Sorry. It's from The Marshall Project. You can find it. You can Google it under the Marshall Project, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And Maurice Shema, thanks so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. Thanks so much for having me. Really great to be here.